Hello and welcome back to the fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 36 called The Huns Are Coming. In the last episode we heard about how things started to deteriorate for the Romans after Julian the Apostate's death in 363. This began with his immediate successor Jovian who negotiated a humiliating peace with Persia before he was probably murdered by his own troops. Then we focused on Valentinian and how he just managed to keep things going in the West despite almost continual war along the Rhine and Upper Danube and the collapse of Roman government in Britain and North Africa. But things got too much for him quite literally when he died of a stroke while losing his temper with a group of Germans, the Quadi. Now, you might think things were bad enough already for the Romans, but we're just about to get to the moment in 376 when a huge host of Goths appeared on the banks of the Lower Danube. Now, this would be a real game changer since it would start a sequence of events leading ultimately to the sack of the city of Rome itself in AD 410 and then the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which was fully extinguished by AD 476. But before we get to that, let's find out what had been happening to Valentinian's brother Valens, who would, of course, find himself in the eye of the storm with the Goths. Well, so far, he'd had a much easier time of it than Valentinian. As mentioned in the last episode, his first challenge had been to deal with a rebellion by Julian's cousin Procopius in 364, which he'd won by securing the loyalty of the Eastern army, which was better disposed towards him than to Procopius, mainly since Procopius was Julian's cousin, and their loyalties had always lain with Julian's rival Constantius. Next, he had to face a Gothic invasion because Procopius had called on the Goths to support him. On this occasion, Valen successfully pushed the Goths back over the Danube, although it doesn't seem that they were seriously intent on invading Roman territory, and they protested to Valens that they'd been invited to invade by Procopius, so they were only doing what the Romans wanted. In 369, Valens made peace with them and awarded himself the title Gothicus Maximus. So far, so good. The next challenge was Persia, and just as with the Goths to begin with, this seemed to be going okay. The bone of contention was, as ever, Armenia, the buffer state between Rome and Persia, which was an interminable source of conflict. Now, thanks to Jovian's humiliating treaty in 363 with Shapur, Rome had passed control of Armenia to Persia. Taking advantage of this, the Persians had imprisoned the pro-Roman Armenian king Arshak II, but his son Papas, or Pap as he was known, escaped, and in 369 Valens decided to support him to try to recover the throne. Not surprisingly, Shapur was none too pleased about this, and seeing it as a breach of the treaty, which it was, responded by invading Armenia and overrunning most of the country. Pap just escaped with his life and appealed to Valens, who, with the Goths now under control, was able to send 12 legions to Armenia, where they scored a victory over the Persians at the Battle of Bagavan in 370. Shapur was also distracted by attacks on his eastern frontier by the Kushans and so was willing to let Rome get its way in Armenia. So round one to the Romans. However, Pap 
overstepped his authority and started to demand control of Roman towns like Caesarea and Edessa, advised by his generals that Pap could be a traitor, Valens had his general Trajanus invite him to dinner and murder him, a tactic you've heard before the Romans were fond of, and which you'll be hearing about again before very long. Valens replaced him with a more loyal Roman stooge called Arasdat. Now, all of this shenanigans in Armenia merely served to infuriate Shapur, who had been distracted by a war in the east against the Kushans, but... By 375, the situation with the Kushans had stabilised and Shapur was ready again for a fight in Armenia. But the problem for Valens was that he wasn't ready. And the reason was that round two with the Goths had started. And unlike the rather easy round one, when the Goths had been invited into the Roman Empire by Procopius and were quite willing to retreat back over the Danube. This time, something very different was happening, because as our friend, the Roman historian, who is, of course, our main source for this period, Ammianus Marcellinus, wrote, quote, men heard that over the whole area extending from the Marcomanni and Quadi to the Black Sea, a savage horde of remote tribes driven from their homes by unexpected pressure were roaming with their families in the Danube region, end quote. Ammianus goes on to say that the number of these barbarians was so vast that, quote, to try to find their number is as vain as numbering the windswept Libyan sands, end quote. Another source says that there were probably over 200,000 of them. What was happening was a huge migration of Goths, and the operative word here is migration. This wasn't the usual type of raid designed to get rich quick, which had been the normal Gothic motive even back in the 3rd century. What had happened was that two entire Gothic tribes, the Gratungai and Tevingai, suddenly appeared on the Danube, including men, women and children. And the next most surprising thing is that they didn't want to fight. They wanted asylum. They were refugees from something far more terrifying. They were fleeing from an enemy they'd never seen before, an enemy they thought they couldn't hope to survive by fighting. And that enemy was also a new one to the entire Roman world. It was the Huns. Ammianus provides us with a vivid description of the Huns, which is our best insight into this hitherto unknown race, and about which we actually still know relatively little. Ammianus describes them thus, the people of the Huns, who are mentioned only cursorily by ancient writers, and who dwell beyond the Palace Myotis, which is the Sea of Azov, near the frozen ocean, are quite abnormally savage. End quote. The frozen ocean appears to refer to the Arctic Circle, which is a bit too far north, as you'll hear in a moment. He goes on to describe them as barely human. Quote, they have squat bodies, strong limbs and thick necks, and are so prodigiously ugly and bent that they might be two-legged animals or the figures crudely carved from stumps which are seen on the parapets of bridges. Still, their shape, however disagreeable, is human. 
But their way of life is so rough that they have no use for fire or seasoned food, but live on the roots of wild plants and the half-raw flesh of any sort of animal. End quote. Now, you might think Ammianus is describing orcs out of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and indeed it wouldn't surprise me if his description was what inspired J.R.R. Tolkien to dream up the idea of the orcs. So the key questions are, who were the Huns, where did they come from, and why were they so terrifying? So to start with, who were they? The only thing we know for certain is that they were nomads from the great Eurasian steppe, which is a huge area stretching from western China to eastern Europe, about three and a half thousand miles wide. Now, some historians think they might have been the Sungnu nomads, originally based in modern Mongolia. This tribe was well documented in Chinese records because it caused considerable problems for Han China, raiding and harassing the northwestern Chinese frontiers, until a major Chinese military expedition managed to subdue them. According to the Chinese, a large part of the Sungnu fled west, thereby giving rise to the speculation that these were the Huns. However, this exodus happened in about AD 100, and the Huns didn't make an appearance in modern Ukraine until about AD 370, so there's a gap of about 300 years, which seems difficult to explain. And of course, it's also a very long way from Mongolia to the Ukraine. But there could be a reason for why this happened, and the answer lies with climate change. Because recent advances in paleoclimatology, which is the study of previous climates in Earth's history, have revealed groundbreaking new insights into the history of the Huns. In particular, studies analysing millennia-long juniper tree ring records, and yes, it might sound surprising that there are still trees dating back thousands of years, but apparently they do exist, show that in the 4th century Asian steppelands, there was a prolonged period of drought, or what climatologists call mega-drought, just before the Huns appeared in Europe. And the evidence suggests the drought was particularly intense between AD 320 and 360, which is a perfect reason for the steppe nomads to become so worried that they felt they had to move hundreds and even thousands of miles to new regions in search of more fertile ground to graze their flocks of goats and sheep. This evidence is also supported by research that the Central Asian steppeland suffered from a prolonged La Nina-like condition at exactly the same time. Just to remind you what El Nino and La Nina are, they refer to the cycle of warming and cooling of water in the eastern tropical Pacific Ocean cycle. El Nino is warm and La Nina is cold. Now, the effect of this cycle in warming and cooling of the Pacific has quite a profound effect on the climates of other places on the Earth. And for the Asian steppeland, the result is that El Nino produces rain while La Nina produces drought. Now, climatologists are pretty sure that in the 4th century AD, there was a prolonged La Nina, which would therefore have contributed to the aridity of the Asian steppe, supporting the juniper tree ring evidence for a mega drought. Now, there's another point in this story, which is very relevant, which is that I know it sounds counterintuitive, but nomads don't actually like to travel too far. 
This sounds wrong because the word nomad means a wanderer, so it's quite fair to think that nomads like to wander and to travel. And so it doesn't sound crazy that the Huns travel all the way from Mongolia to the Ukraine because that's the sort of thing nomads do. Wrong. In fact, anthropologists are quite unanimous that nomads don't like to travel too far. What being nomadic refers to is not travelling the world for the fun of it, but the alternation of grazing land between summer and winter. This happens in the Asian steppe land because it comprises two different types of pasture. Upland summer pasture, which provides abundant grass in summer, but is too cold for grass to grow in winter, and lowland winter pasture where there's a lack of rain in summer, but in winter there's plenty of rain and it's not so cold for the grass to grow. Now, Asian steppe nomads typically alternate between upland and lowland, and usually within just a 100-mile radius. The important thing to remember is that the priority for the Huns was grazing their flocks, which was their only asset, meeting all of their needs in terms of milk, meat, and providing leather for clothing. Now, this means that for the Huns to have migrated all the way from Mongolia to the edge of ancient Germania required something very special to cause it. Defeat by the Chinese Han dynasty may certainly have played a part, and there may well have been other tribal conflicts as well. But I think it makes sense that climate change was probably the main reason for such a significant migration. And if this is correct then it makes for a very interesting perspective on the fall of the Roman Empire, for we have to acknowledge that climate change in Central Asia could have been one of the most significant factors. And still on the subject of climate change, you might remember we spent the whole of episode 12 discussing climate change in Europe during the period of the Roman Empire, with the latest research suggesting the Romans benefited from a favourable climate in the period of the Republic and Pax Romana when all was going very well for them. And then they might have suffered from a less favourable climate during the late empire and up to the collapse of the Western Empire. If we then throw into that theory that it was climate change that also drove the Huns to invade Europe, then climate history is becoming quite an important part of Roman history. And I think this is one of the most exciting new areas of research that we have today. And I also just want to throw into the debate as a brief digression that if we think the Hunnic migration was the result of climate change, then this could add a new insight into the discussion of how climate change today might affect the modern world. But enough of that brief digression, and let's get back to the Huns in the 4th century. So we have a theory about where they came from and why they moved west. But what was it that made them so terrifying, even to a proud and highly militarised society like the Goths? Now, the answer here is that they were particularly good at fighting. And why they were so good is because they fought in a different way from both the Germans and the Romans. As usual, Ammianus gives us a very good description when he says, quote, the Huns enter battle drawn up in wedge-shaped masses. And as they are lightly equipped for swift motion and unexpected in action, they purposefully divide suddenly into scattered bands and attack 
rushing about in disorder here and there, dealing terrific slaughter. They fight from a distance with missiles having sharp bone instead of their usual points, joined to the shafts with wonderful skill. Then they gallop over the intervening spaces and fight hand-to-hand with swords. End quote. Another key writer for this period, Zosimus, says that, quote, the Huns were totally incapable and ignorant of conducting a battle on foot, but by wheeling, charging, retreating in good time and shooting from their horses, they wrought immense slaughter, end quote. So the Huns were typical of steppe nomads who were deadly with their bows and could then gallop in and attack their enemies with swords. But there seems to have been something particularly frightening about the Huns, and the British historian Peter Heather has ventured an explanation. This is that what few remains we have of Hunnic bows suggests that they were particularly large and powerful. A key point with all the steppe nomads was that they had more powerful bows than those in Europe because they didn't use a single stave of wood to make a bow, which was the norm in Europe for thousands of years, including the famous longbows of the Middle Ages. These involve shooting an arrow by pulling a string which forces the wood into a concave shape, but the steppe nomads' bows were different. They used what are called composite recurve bows, which are much more complicated and difficult to make, comprising separate sections of wood and bone glued together to create strength, making the shape of the bow into a sort of W. Now, for horsemen, this is a much more powerful bow than just using the single stave of wood. And for thousands of years, all the steppe nomads have been using recurve bows. But the Huns did something on top of that. To return to the view put forward by Peter Heather, his analysis of the remains of Hunnic bows suggests that whereas most nomad bows were about 30 inches long, the Huns' bows were much, much longer, between 50 and 60 inches. Now, you might ask, how did they manage to fire a bow that was so long, especially because they were shooting from the saddle, which means that the horse will get in the way of the bow? It's simple to have a much longer bow if you're an infantryman and you can stand up to shoot the sort of long bow that the English excelled at in the Middle Ages. But when it comes to shooting from the saddle, surely there's a limit to how long the bow can be. Well, what the Huns did was to make the bow asymmetric, by which I mean that the half below the handle was shorter than the half above. Now, you're probably thinking, why didn't everyone do this then? Well, the reason was skill and comfort. It's much more difficult to be accurate with an asymmetric bow. It's also bigger and less easy to carry around. But Peter Heather argues that with the Huns, those disadvantages were more than outweighed by the power and distance of the shot. For example, the Huns' asymmetric bows gave them the ability to shoot arrows through the armour which the Sarmatians and the Alans used, the two tribes which they first encountered in the West. Then when they came up against the Goths, who didn't typically wear metal armour at all unless they'd pinched it from the Romans, their advantage was even more overwhelming. One point just worth noting is that the Huns at this time didn't use stirrups. They used heavy wooden saddles which allowed them to grip the horse with their legs and create a firm firing platform. Stirrups were in fact unknown in Europe until the Dark Ages, although historians think they were being used in the 4th century and before then in some parts of India and China. 
So that's the background to the appearance of the Huns in the West. And in terms of timing, it appears that they were present on the rivers Don and Volga by around AD 350. There they met and subjugated the Alans, who were a Germanic nation, but according to Ammianus, they had skills in metalwork, which enabled them to field armoured cavalry, as I mentioned. The Huns' arrows made short work of these, and they joined the Hunnic armies. Then the Goths advanced south over the Dnieper River and into the Gothic lands in what is modern-day Romania. Clearly the Goths tried to stop them, and although we don't have many details, Ammianus indicates that there were several battles between the Goths and Huns, with the Goths always coming off worse. One Gothic leader called Amanaric apparently offered himself to be sacrificed to appease the gods whose displeasure was seen as the cause of these Gothic defeats. The Goths even resorted to using old Roman defensive systems to fend off the Huns. In particular, there was a long Roman wall on the river Olt in the former Roman province of Dacia, which Aurelian had evacuated a hundred years before in the crisis of the 3rd century. But all to no avail. The Huns were triumphant and by the summer of 376, 200,000 Goths arrived on the Danube asking the Romans for asylum from this terrible enemy. A new chapter in Roman history was about to unfold. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And next week, we'll hear how the Romans responded to the Goths' request for asylum. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 